How did Donald Trump bring out the poet in John Lithgow? The actor and author and poet will be here to discuss his new collection, Dumpty, The Age of Trump in Verse. What happens when you introduce dark magic into the famous secret societies at Yale? Lee Bardugo will be here to talk about her best-selling fantasy novel, The Ninth House. Alexander Alta will give us an update from the publishing world. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. John Lithgow joins us now. He is obviously an actor and an author. His most recent book is a book of poetry called Dumpty. John, thanks for being here. Wonderful to be here. Before we even start with questions, let's hear one of these poems. All right. I can read you one of my favorites. It's one of the more oblique ones. It's called The Ostrich's Lament. The Manafort trial was a terrible shock to me and my eastern South African flock. For years, we'd been bred for our feathers and meat in dusty enclosures and god-awful heat. Ungainly and ugly, we'd suffered such scorn that most of us wished that we'd never been born. A species that civilization forgot, contempt, and disgust were the ostrich's lot. But when word of Paul Manafort spread through the veldt, we gaily discarded the hand we'd been dealt. With one lavish purchase, he'd rescued our pride, a sport jacket made from an ostrich's hide. Stupendous, we crowed, how dashing, how chic, the priciest garb in the Bijan boutique. This high-rolling mogul was bound to ensure a glorious future for ostrich couture. But abasement, dishonor, and humiliation came close on the heels of our wild jubilation. Manafort showed us his fat feet of clay, a poster boy proving that crime doesn't pay. Revealed as a monster of fiscal duplicity, his sport jacket spawned catastrophic publicity. With a crook, as the ostrich's fashion bellwether, who would buy sportswear that featured our leather? Gloom has befallen the old ostrich ranch. We're nursing a wound that no surgeon can stanch. Our moment of glory was gone in a flash, betrayed by the laundering of ill-gotten cash. The felons in prison, and we're in disgrace, cursing the wiles of the vile human race. From afar you can picture our unhappy band, each one of us sticking its head in the sand. Excellent. I feel like I should clap. I will clap on the podcast. I should say in this collection, right, you, each poem is about a person within the orbit of Trump. You have a little after note in case we've forgotten that particular character. And we have. And we have, <laughs> right? The, I mean, the, some one, of it, yeah. It's one of the problems with events having such velocity. Yes, and, and, and so many of them, too. So you knew you wanted to do Paul Manafort, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. How did you get to the ostrich? This is actually not like most of them. Most of them take on the characters head-on. As I say, it was an oblique approach. It just amused me. In each case, I tried to think of some very funny hook to hang the the story on. These are not exactly delightful times. And one of my, I mean, my intention always as an actor and a performer is to certainly engage and always delight people in some sense, even if they're watching a tragedy, they want to be thrilled by it. 
So this is my intention with this was to be funny for sure. But, to thrill people with Paul Manafort. <laughs> well, to thrill people with rhymes and, and wit to the extent that I can. And to me, it was a wonderful combination of a dark subject and a, a kind of lighthearted treatment of it, a, a satiric treatment. I mean, it's certainly fueled by anger. One of the interesting things about the book that I sort of see in retrospect if you read it start to finish, that's 33 poems on 33 subjects. And I can almost track my growing anger and boldness. They get darker and darker as they go along. They're always comic poems. But when they start dealing with things like the death of Kosoji, for example. Mm-hmm. Or, Jamal Khashoggi, yeah, the Jamal uh, Khashoggi, journalist from the, the Washington Post. Ass- the assassination of Khashoggi or... or Shara Bichard's abortion, to treat things like that in in the context of doggerel poetry, it's a challenge. I mean, it's a challenge to do it, and it's a challenge to read it. Although, as I say, my intention is to is to to amuse people and make them think. At the Was same there time. anything or anyone too dark to go near? No, no. I I, I went there. I sort of made a list when I a sort of database of all the subjects I intended to hit, and I sort of ticked them off one by one, and I sort of saved the more difficult and challenging ones as I went along. And of course, events were a lot of it was sort of more or less happening in real time. Kept That's the other new thing. Characters. Yeah, uh, William Barr. Who had heard of William Barr in the first year of the Trump presidency? And yet, my last poem that I delivered on my deadline of April 1st. The last poem dealt with Barr's summary of the the Mueller report, which had happened only about three days before. Did you organize the book in chronological order, the order in which you sort of events occurred? And- no. In, in fact, we did a little bit of shuffling mm-hmm. when I had reached my critical mass. We, we changed the sequence. But it's more or less chronological just because I wrote it over a year and a lot happens in a year. Did you start with Donald Trump? No. In fact, it was my original intention not even to mention his name. I thought one of the greatest ways of knocking Trump is to leave him out <laughs> because he's such a an attention getter. But at a certain point, I thought, well, this is crazy. I can't beat around the bush this entire book. I did make the decision to write one long, long poem about him. The longest poem in it is called Seven Days in November, about the week following the midterm elections. Mm -hmm. That was one of Trump's crazy weeks. So much happened. That was when Jeff Sessions was fired and Matt Whitaker was hired and he went to France and skipped the Belleau Wood Memorial and skipped the rain on the Champs-Élysées. This feels like 50,000 years ago. I know. It's a history book. I mean, once April 1st passed, it immediately became a history book because just think what's happened since then. So I want to get back to the origins of this book because you're a busy person. You act in many TV shows, film, theater, and you've written books, of course. But when did you sort of sit down and say, like, what I really need to do is write a book of poetry about the current administration? Well, I didn't really need to or I only sort of needed to on a sort of subconscious level level. I have a wonderful literary agent, a man named David Kuhn, and he, I have done absolutely nothing since I signed with him as an agent. I don't even think he 
weighed in when I, the Times hired me to write a children's book review. So he was kind of frustrated with me. He read one of those reviews, in fact, and called me the next day and said, come on, we have to sit down and decide what you're going to write in a very sort of cheerful way. And we got together and it was just batted around ideas and none of them were particularly captivating to me. But I suddenly remembered an event of a year before when I had sung the Major General's song for the Public Theater Gala in Central Park, and I sang it in the, in the role of Michael T. Flynn. I am the very model of an ex-Lieutenant General in a Navy suit, red tie. I totally rewrote the third verse, and it was not until then that anybody figured out why I was wearing sort of Washington, D.C. mufti. I launched into this, this satiric verse. When President Obama made me head of all things clandestine, he realized he'd brought to life a governmental Frankenstein. But then I made a killing in a case of public pillory by shouting, lock her up in my harangue opposing Hillary, etc. You wrote that whole thing? I wrote the whole thing. Is it in here in the book? It actually became the first poem. Well, uh, it's not the first in the sequence, but it's the first one I wrote for the book. I just took those lyrics and fashioned them into a poem about Michael T. Flynn. And as I sang this, it's like David's face lit up like only a literary agent's face can. And he, I finished the song and he said, my God, there's your book. It's very rare for an agent's face to light up when you say you want to write a book of poetry, so that's <laughs> yeah. very nice. And it was his idea. It really was. I, I mean, me writing a poetry book, people calling me a poet? I don't call myself a poet. I have way too much regard for poets. Now you can. Well, I don't know. <laughs> it's, I'm a clown. I mean, as a poet, I'm a very good actor. You see hearing me recite one of my poems, I write them as performance pieces. Mm -hmm. All my children's books are pieces that I perform for children in concerts. And many of those are in verse, right? They're all in verse. verse. And they, they are the lyrics of songs. They're narrations of orchestral suites. One of them is the narration for a ballet, the Carnival of the Animals for the New York City Ballet, which I actually danced in. They're all performance pieces. You're not going to turn this into a dance act, this book. Oh, my God. Well, <laughs> it, it was done by Christopher Wielden, and he's a very creative man. <laughs> so maybe this will be part of your book tour. Did you feel like you could do something in poetry that you wouldn't have been able to do in prose with this subject matter? I don't know that I would have had the nerve. I'm basically a fairly spineless person politically. I, I have my passionate politics, but I keep them to myself. There's something in me that edits myself because I'm an actor, because I feel hesitant to trade on my my celebrity to the extent that I have any to put forth my own political opinions. It's like, who am I? But the Trump era has sort of changed that. I think it's happened with a lot of people. You just become more vocal because you're more distressed by the situation. But I am an entertainer, so I had to figure out some way to do this in an entertaining fashion. It's just that's my nature, I guess. 
I want to veer into acting for just a second since you brought that up. And then we'll go back to poetry. But you have acted roles that are very political in nature. And the two I'm thinking of, because they were relatively recent, was when you did Joseph Halsep on on stage. And, of course, Winston Churchill in The Crown. And then coming up, you play Roger Ailes in Bombshell. I'm assuming that you don't necessarily agree politically with everything that these three real-life figures believe or believed in. Wow, they're all past tense, believed. But is it useful intellectually? Is there something when you inhabit that mind that you're able to understand about their politics? Well, I'm in the empathy business. Uh, When I play a role, I always try to plumb the depths of that person. And if it's a villainous person, I try to look inside and see uh, what is it that drives that person. The source is usually that person's insecurity, and I love to sort of examine that. That's certainly the case with Roger Ailes. It was the case with Winston Churchill, not a villain, of course, a great man, but he he was very insecure as he faced old age, and in fact, his whole life, he, there were great pools of insecurity. Well, in he Churchill. had a very up and down, up and down life and a very mercurial temperament. It's fascinating apart from anything else, but also... You have to sort of understand your place in the cast of characters, your role in the film or the play. If you're the bad guy, you have to embrace the fact that you're the bad guy. But a bad guy doesn't consider himself a bad guy. What's fascinating is a bad guy sometimes is in the grips of some compulsion that he doesn't want to have. Right. There's some sort of inner conflict in him. And that's the essence of characterization, sort of the the essence of drama is conflict. Do you do a lot of reading when you prepare for these roles? Did you yeah. read a lot of Churchill? And... It, it depends, but I certainly read a lot of Churchill, mm-hmm. a lot of Roger Ailes. In the case of Churchill, I read more than I needed to because the subject was so, so fascinating. Good. Yeah. Yeah. And I find as much video as I can or talk to people. In the case of Roger Ailes, I had the bright idea of finding an old friend of mine from the 1970s who actually worked as Ailes' partner when he was a theater producer. He was aspiring to be a theater producer in New York and heard incredible stories about Ailes, which completely upended the conventional wisdom about Roger Ailes. Can you share one of those stories? Just just his sense of humor, his jokes, his pranks, his capacity to laugh out loud for 15 seconds out of control. I mean, that's very interesting. Yeah. And the fact that that he could be very, very tough on his own conservative political candidates for their lack of empathy and for being too conservative, hmm. bawling them out for saying things at campaign rallies or fundraising events that betrayed a political agenda that's too far right— bawling them out physically, taking them by the lapels and banging them against a wall. You take that when you're playing Roger Ailes as an old man and you hear about that behavior when he was 35 years old, that's gold. And and the fact that he had a, a broader spectrum politically and uh, interpersonally than you expected. The other thing was my friend Steve, who worked with him, never saw a whisper of predatory sexual behavior. Hmm. He was completely astonished by this and appalled. 
a character like that and a scandal like that, so much secrecy and self-suppression is involved. That's another thing to grab onto. So going back to the poetry and speaking about these kinds of political figures, did you make any efforts to kind of plumb the depths when with these? Well, I did, I did research in yeah. every case. I mean, as you pointed out, every poem is accompanied by a very deadpan piece of factual information. Yes. Incontestable factual information. Give us some examples from the book, some of the figures and and the way in which you decide to describe them. Because you have this contrast between the poem and then that very, you know, deadpan description. Well, I found out a lot of information about Wilbur Ross, for example. I did a riff on Lewis Carroll, his poem, You Are Old Father William, of course I call it, You Are Old Father Wilbur. And I did a lot of research on him, including the the wonderful little anecdote quoted in Forbes magazine that on leaving a restaurant, a a sort of cheap diner, he pocketed a great big fistful of Splenda packets. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see, my couplet there is, according to Forbes, the boy said with a taunt, you're a shockingly petty offender. They say that departing a cheap restaurant, you pocketed packets of Splenda. You know, that's... Uh, and how do you describe him at the end? Simply, Wilbur Ross is an investor and the U.S. Secretary of Commerce. Okay. Just all this irrefutable information. Yes. You also, the drawings, the illustrations yes. Yes. that accompany this. As a kid, right up until the age of 18 or 19, I, I was definitely uh, intending to be an artist. From the age of six, if people ask me that question, I would say I wanted to be an artist. I had a sort of innate facility, and I studied. I had wonderful public school art education, and I went to the Art Students League. In In New York. In New York, and had every intention of of being a painter and a printmaker. Then it went off the rails. Well, (laughs) I heard too much laughter and applause. You know, I, I grew up in a theater family, and didn't intend to go into the family business, but at a certain point, you know, it's like someone finally saying, oh, all right, I'll be a lawyer, you know. Well, in that, in this case, it was – and, you know, acting in college, it was so damn fun. And I realized there's not anything I could do any better than this. I'd better go with the flow. Is this your first book that has your artwork in yes, it? Yes. My children's book editor, wonderful man named David Gale at Simon & Schuster. He's always pestered me to write a book of poetry exactly like this, but for kids. Yeah, the content would be a little different. uh, Yes, the content would be different, but I would illustrate that. Because I do Christmas cards, Mm -hmm. and I do little gifts, you know, opening night drawings of the cast, or wrap gifts on films. I draw or paint things and print them up and give them to everybody. And I'm a hobbyist. I do, on occasion, I have these little chapters when I get hold of a studio and just spend a a couple of months oil painting. So you're going to take your editor's advice and and do that picture book? I I haven't settled on anything, but I think if I do another book, that's probably the one I should focus on. He just said said that would go right into every library in the country. Look at Shel Silverstein. Yeah. Was this project overall fun or was it torture or both? It was torture. It was torture and fun at the same time. I think with anything, as soon as you finish something, it suddenly you suddenly hit the delete button on how unpleasant the process was. When I thought of the last the last rhyme of the last line of every poem, I was just elated. 
Uh, and I loved reading it to my brother and sisters and, and to friends. It, we were all so tickled by the whole project. And then, but it, it began to kick in, oh my God, I'm going to have to get this finished. When a publisher gives you his timeline and a pub date and a whole bunch of dates when you have to hit this and that benchmark, suddenly it becomes homework. Very, (laughs) very serious homework. There was an interesting period when I was doing Roger Ailes. I had this two-and-a-half-hour makeup session every day, and I was scheduled for 17 shooting days. And I thought, my God, I can't lose that time. So I instructed my two makeup artists who did this extremely complicated makeup. Like one on each side of your face? I mean, yeah, they, it, they literally – one was taking care of the left side and one was taking the right side. And then, then they would switch back and forth to check each other's work. To make sure that it was – wait, yeah. now I have to ask, was the makeup harder for Winston Churchill or Roger Ailes? Oh, much harder for Roger Ailes. I didn't have any makeup for Winston Churchill. I I had an extraordinary wig and okay. I and I stuck little plumpers in my in my jowls. Yes, you both, need those <laughs> both to to change my face, but also to change my diction. And I stuffed cotton up my nose, which also helped with his nasality. You know, apart from that, turns out I look a lot more like Winston Churchill than I thought <laughs> I did. But this was the full Monty. This was six pieces of prosthesis glued wow. on in different places. But this genius uh, makeup artist, Kazuhiro Tsuji, executed this. And I I sit and watch the film, and it's jaw-dropping. It's so accurate. It's just human flesh. It's kind of terrifying. You can write a poem about yourself afterwards as Roger Ailes. Did I or should I? You can. I could. You can. You can hand in another homework assignment. I may just. All right. Well, (laughs) I think that the torture and the unpleasantness was all worth it for readers. John Lithgow, author, actor, illustrator, and poet. Thank you for being here. Oh, my God. (laughs) There you go. The book is called Dumpty, and congratulations on it. Thanks so much. It's really a pleasure, Pamela. Thank you. So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. Alexander Alter joins us now with news from the publishing world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. What's new? So this week we learned about another, yet another, tell-all book coming out of the Trump administration. There's obviously been a slew of these from the Justice Department, from former White House officials, and that was not a surprise. What was a surprise was the author, and I can't tell you anything about the author because no one knows who the author is. This but is... you're supposed to know, Alexandra. <laughs> That's my whole job, but today I know nothing. The author is anonymous. The book is titled A Warning, and the author is apparently the same writer who published an op-ed in the New York Times last fall saying that there was this kind of resistance within the Trump administration, these patriots who were serving in order to thwart the president's worst impulses and undermine his agenda when they felt it didn't align with the country's best interests. When the op-ed came out, it was extremely controversial. You know, 
know, kind of ignited criticism both on the right and the left with some people saying on the left that if you're such a patriot, why not come out and name yourself and tell Congress and do something? You're in a position to reveal things. And, of course, on the right, the argument was this is somebody who is undermining the president. The president himself, you know, accused the person of treason and said that his Justice Department should investigate. So, I, you know, a year went by and we— I confess I forgot kind of about this person. I always wondered, though, if this official would eventually write a book because it seemed like an obvious, almost a book proposal in print form when the op-ed came out. And, of course, the agents who signed and represented this writer are the Javelin Agency. This is a, up, I wouldn't say up and coming, it's arrived D.C.-focused literary agency. They represented Jim Comey in his deal, and they represented Cliff Sims, another White House official who left the administration and wrote a book. And they've really become the kind of go-to guys for political tell-alls. And they had already raised their hand and said, if, if Anonymous ever wants to write a book, we'd love to represent it. Nonetheless, I had forgotten about this author until the news broke this week, and it was, I think, first reported by the Washington Post that Anonymous had sold a book to 12, which is an imprint of the Hachette Book Group. And according to the agents at Javelin, the author is not taking it in advance and will be donating, you know, the bulk of the royalties to nonprofits that are dedicated to government accountability and international press freedom. And I think that was obviously part of the announcement to head off any criticism that this person was trying to cash in. So that was in. like the criticism against James Comey, for example. A lot of the officials that have come out with books, you know, that are critical of the administration have gotten that criticism. And uh, many of the books have been bestsellers. So yeah. it's not a totally out of place. Nikki Haley has a book coming out next month as well. Is it expected to be critical of the administration as well? You know, I haven't gotten wind of what is in that book, but I would be surprised just based on her public messaging, you know, as somebody who will occasionally criticize the administration but has never gone very far. I mm -hmm. can't imagine it being a huge bombshell type book. A lot of the officials that have written those types of books were already kind of publicly on the record. Right. Comey and others. But here's a question I have about Anonymous. I mean, one of the things with that piece is is because of the short length, right? It was sort of very hard to identify who exactly. it was. Presumably, this is going to be dropping a lot more, you know, many more breadcrumbs. I would think so, too. Someone who is somewhat familiar with the material, you know, has said that this book will have explosive new revelations and the timeline will come up to current events. You know, I did try to find out if it would deal with the Ukraine scandal and the impeachment inquiry and things of that nature because now we have whistleblowers coming out of the woodwork. I wasn't able to determine that, but I do agree with you that, you know, in a book, you are going to have to drop more clues. I mean, the style question is one. That's how anonymous authors have been identified in the past. There's very sophisticated software that can match people's literary style and sentence structure and word choice and determine who the author is. Of course, you would need a pretty public record of your writing at that point. So mm -hmm. if the author hasn't published books before or many articles or given many public speeches, that might not work. But you would think there might be subtle biographical clues. It's already, you know, the person has been identified as a senior administration official. Doesn't tell um, us much. Doesn't tell us much. It's it's not clear if the person is still in the administration. I asked that and, and was told they couldn't comment on that. 
But if there are certain events that are described in a way, I don't know if there's an indication that this person was a witness to certain events and we can determine, oh, three people were there, you know, you would narrow it down. The agents, you know, say that they have taken great precautions to conceal the person's identity and they're going out of their way to make sure their cover isn't blown. But we'll see. I mean, people are definitely going to try to find out. Any theories? I don't personally have any. I mean, you can imagine what the Internet is speculating. It's Melania. Melania. Some people say Vice President Mike Pence. John Kelly. Uh, John Kelly was a popular choice when the original op-ed was published. And, you know, there's such high turnover in the administration. There are many, many candidates. And I think that has been a bit of a surprising boon for publishers because— you know, in past administrations, you would have to wait sometimes four years to get someone to come out with their tell-all, and now it's just a matter of weeks or months. You know, the revolving door is quite rapid. Just in time for your holiday shopping season. That's right. November 19th is coming right. out. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Lee Bardugo is here in the studio. She is usually in Los Angeles, but she's here to talk about her new book, an instant New York Times bestseller, as they say. It's called Ninth House. Lee, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So this is your first book for adults. People would probably know your name if they have gone anywhere near a teenager or a teenage book because you wrote the Grisha trilogy and then the duology, Six of Crows, which also takes place in that whole Grisha verse. We'll talk about that shortly, but let's talk about this book, which is set at Yale. Why Yale? Well, I went to Yale, so I had a limited choice of places to choose from. But I I knew very early on and for a very long time that I wanted to write a story about the secret societies at Yale. But instead of sort of demystifying them, I really wanted to hyper-mystify them. And the story really began with the idea that what if these very real societies that have yielded very powerful alumni, you know, um, publishers and presidents and secretaries of state and Academy Award winners uh, and hedge fund managers, the people who make culture and economies, what if the reason they had yielded these alumni was not that they're just old boy drinking clubs, but that they're actually repositories of arcane magic? And what if each of these societies represented a different branch of the occult? So that was really where this idea began. And I wanted to set it. I didn't want to write the book if I couldn't set it at Yale and use these real institutions. But you are not an old boy, and yet you no. were in one of these <laughs> secret societies, not Skull and Bones. You were in Wolf's Head. I was. Thank What's for that? Having me. <laughs> well, in my book, Wolf's Head are shapeshifters, but alas, I do not have that ability that you know of. So, no, I'm not an old boy, and the societies have changed a lot over the years. And the fact is, the reality of the societies, there are now something like 100 secret societies at Yale that aren't particularly secret and the meet in common areas. But I think that there's a mystical quality to these old societies. They're called the Ancient Eight, and they have tombs. I mean, they're clubhouses, but they're called tombs and they have no windows. Mm -hmm. And they are these extraordinary pieces of architecture that are sprinkled around campus. And I have a very clear memory of being a freshman and walking home from the post office because we wrote letters in the olden times. And I saw one of these places. I did not know what it was. I just knew that I was looking at a mausoleum that was the size of an apartment building. Mm -hmm. And I think that these older societies, from their inception, yes, 
they have no windows, but obviously they want to be looked at. You don't build an apartment-sized mausoleum or a miniature Egyptian temple or an English manor house surrounded by a wall if you aren't interested in provoking some kind of speculation. Many people think of these secret societies as essentially, you know, a way of awarding and extending privilege. And your book is about privilege in a lot of ways. What did you want to write about privilege? I mean, I think that the metaphor is pretty clear in the book that magic is just another kind of power. And I think for me, when I was at Yale, privilege operates in in almost the same way that magic does, in that you can point to simply wealth or you can point to simply connection, but there's another language that people speak of of knowledge and of experience and of family connection, where you're from, how you dress, how you talk, the opportunities you're given that I felt certainly locked out of and that I think most people do. And I wanted to create a character who was fundamentally locked out of those things, but that had then been given access to them. And yet, is unable to take full advantage of those opportunities because of the past that she has, which I think is a position many people find themselves in. Let's talk a little bit about that heroine. Yes. Uh, her name is Galaxy Stern. She bears a couple of, you know, light resemblances to you insofar as, you know, you were born in Israel but grew up in Los Angeles, so did she, and you both go to Yale, but you're, I'm assuming, not the same person. We are definitely not the same person. Alex, she prefers Alex, was raised by a hippie. I was not. And... She and I have certain things in common. Neither of us knew our biological fathers. Both of us are very cut off from even the culture on our mother's side because of the way that modern Judaism sometimes operates. She's Sephardic. I'm Sephardic. But that's really where the similarities end. Alex comes from a much rougher past because of this unique ability she has to see through the veil, to see to the other side and see the dead. She has had a lot of trauma in her life. And because she doesn't have any kind of real support network or a really functioning or stable family unit, she is vulnerable to the things that happen to her in a very deep way. And so she has a criminal past. She fell in with a very bad crowd. She started self-medicating against this power very early. And so she is also found at a crime scene, multiple homicide, and uh, is when you talk about rock bottom, she is absolutely there when she is offered this chance to come to Yale and join the Ninth House. So that sounds suspicious, auspicious and yet (laughs) suspicious that she would be offered this place at Yale. Very much so. There are many strings attached. If I create these eight societies or, you know, use these eight existing societies and endow them with this kind of magic and you have these undergraduates who are playing with this kind of power, then there has to be some kind of oversight body. And this is where the ninth house came from. This is my invention. Except it's really palliative. It's really just there. They're there to make people feel better, to make the administration feel better, to smooth things over, as opposed to really acting as any kind of stop against some of the very dangerous things people are doing with this magic. So Alex is given this position, but she has no real authority. And when there's a murder on campus, She knows in her gut that something is very wrong, and she certainly identifies with the victim much more than she identifies with anybody else around her. The victim is town. The victim has a a not-great boyfriend who is a dealer, and Alex feels like this case is going to be left behind and not truly solved. And so despite 
the fact that she is a true survivor and knows that she is going to put herself in jeopardy, she feels the need to pursue this this murder mystery. So there's a lot in here that's very reality-based in terms of power and privilege and things that might go on at Yale behind closed doors and what she experiences, Alex Stern, before she even comes to Yale. You could do a lot in here without even introducing a fantasy element. I'm curious, like, did you did you know that you wanted it to be fantasy? Oh, yeah. What can it do with these themes that maybe realistic fiction or satire can't? I think that fantasy... Look, fantasy almost always operates as some kind of metaphor for what we're experiencing in the real world or real life. And I think in this case, magic is operating as a commodity in this book. And Alex's ability to see through the veil, to see things that other people can't, is very much a metaphor for the way that women are ignored and not believed when they speak. And so to me, it's a more exciting proposition to explore these things in the context of the fun and horror, and there is quite a bit of horror in the book, the fun and horror of the magical and the uncanny as opposed to hitting people over the head with some kind of didactic hammer. And I'll be honest, like I have a very Michael Bay sensibility that draws me to story. I'm very much a popcorn movie person. And so, you know, when I was writing Six of Crows, I thought, oh, I'm going to write a fun heist story. But you can't write a story about thugs and thieves in a convincing way if you don't explore the forces that made those characters thugs and thieves in the first place. And you know, oh, won't it be fun to write about, you know, occult magic and dark societies, you know, simmering just beneath the surface of this elite establishment? Well, if you're going to write about an elite institution, then you have to explore ideas of power and privilege and gender and race and class, or you're not building a convincing or successful world. So it's not that I went in wanting to hit people on the head with a message, but that message arose inevitably from the story. I want to talk a little bit about the differences between young adult fiction and adult fiction. I'm sure you get asked about this all the time, but it's interesting because you you had the first trilogy, the Grisha trilogy, right, that started with Shadow and Bone, and then you had the duology Six of Crows. And what struck me, I actually read the duology before I read the trilogy. As I was reading them, I was thinking, wow, is this YA? This is actually, it's a little bit sort of on the bubble. There's elements of it. It's not necessarily for a young teenager. It can be, but for a very mature young teenager in that you are dealing with, as you said, issues of power and gender and race and privilege. And in this case, you mentioned that it's it's a fun heist story, which it definitely is, but it also deals with things like sex trafficking. To what extent do you think of the age of your reader? You know, it's interesting Young adult is really a category. It's not a genre. And it includes many, many genres and many kinds of books at many levels of sophistication. And what it is is something that has been up for debate quite a lot. I think that YA is less about the age of the reader than the expectation of the reader. When I was nine or ten, I was reading Stephen King and pulling books off my mom's shelf, sort of and deciding what what I liked and what I didn't like. And I think a lot of readers are like that. And I think a lot of adult readers read YA because they come with a certain expectation. Sometimes that is because there's an expectation about how much violence there will be, how much sexuality there will be. Also, the kind of pacing they're going to experience. YA books tend to be much pacier than a lot of adult science fiction and fantasy. And so I think it's really much more about reader expectation. When I wrote Six of Crows, I knew that it was quite a departure from my original trilogy. The trilogy matures as it goes, but it is certainly, I think, acceptable for younger readers. 
Six of Crows, I wanted to make sure my readers didn't feel blindsided. And so, yes, there were references to sex trafficking that I hope are respectful and thoughtful and not just misery tourism. And there are violent things that happen. And certainly we are moving in a more morally gray world than we were in the trilogy, which is very much a kind of classic chosen one, good and evil story. But I didn't want my readers who were coming from that trilogy to feel blindsided. And so you'll notice there's not a lot of swearing. There are moments of violence, but then I pull back from that. In the trilogy as opposed to the duology? No, in the duology. In the duology. I think, in, I mean, I know that you feel that it's much older YA, but I, I have a surprising range of readers from adults to younger readers. And I think that some of it goes over the heads of the very young readers and some of it, they sense the darkness there, but it is not told in particularly graphic terms. Right. Well, readers, I think young readers can sometimes, they sort of fill filter out what they're not necessarily ready for. Or they'll skim over it. And actually adult readers will too. I have talked to adult readers who will read. They'll be like, well, I don't like sex scenes, so I skim over this person's sex scenes. Or I don't like violence, so I'll skip over the the fight in this thing. Or, you know, because unlike a movie or television show, it's not going to leap out at you and then you're not going to be able to unsee it. I think the books are, are different. Well, I, I'm acknowledging that I, I am not a young adult reader of your <laughs> book. So I'm curious, though, when you when you go around and you, you meet your readers, because uh, both of these series have gone on to become huge bestsellers. I think the Six of Crows spent two years on our, our bestseller list. And as I mentioned earlier, Ninth House is already a bestseller. Who do you find that your readers are? They're predominantly women. Mm-hmm really of all ages. It's interesting that they're women because there are a lot of male characters in your books too. I'm starting to see, you know, the more you're on shelves and the more you're out there, I'm starting to see a higher percentage of men and boys in the audience. As we all know, boys often stop reading. And unfortunately, YA, because it is perceived as being something that is created largely by women and consumed largely by women and girls, has has been the recipient of a lot of contempt from media and culture. I think that there's a desire to – there's an almost grudging – willingness to look at these books and say, oh, oh, this was actually good. And in fact, there's a lot of great work that's being done in YA. There's garbage, too. Who do you like to read in YA? Oh, Holly Black, mm-hmm. I think, is spectacular. She has two YA series that I really adore, The Curse Workers, and then more recently, The Cruel Prince, um, which is wonderful and delicious. And I don't know if you know the movie Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. For some of us who grew up in the 80s, it occupies a very specific space. And and this book gave me what I wanted that movie to be, but never was. I also love Zoraida Cordova, Daniel Jose Older, Laura Ruby, Lainey Taylor, I think, writes some of the most beautiful prose in YA. And I just love all of her books to bits. I can't read them when I'm writing, when I'm drafting, because I, I find them so intimidating. So those of us who do love YA, even if we are not ourselves YA people, when a YA author then writes an adult book, I guess there's this fear of like, oh, no, are you moving on? Are you (laughs) have you grown up? Are you abandoning young adult literature? Well, 
this may be a shock to you, but I am not a teenager, nor have I been close to those years for, for a very long time. I am not leaving YA behind. I love writing in the world of the Grishaverse. That has expanded past the trilogy and the duology to another duology, the King of Scars duology, which I will be writing a sequel to. I would love to write another series of folktales in that world, like The Language of Thorns. And I love writing in that world. I feel very grateful that I got to keep writing in it. Mm-hmm. That's really a privilege your readers give you because they stick with you. And I know many people who envisioned long series of fantasy books that never got to write them because the first book didn't sell. So I will always, I think, return to the Grishaverse and and to YA. And I like writing YA. YA speaks to these kind of radical moments of transition that I think are really resonate with people across all age ranges because it's not as if you turn 18 Mm -hmm. and then suddenly you've come of age and you are full of wisdom. You know, I was an idiot when I was 18 and frankly at 28 too. You're a different person at 18 and 28 and 38 and 48. You you get a job, you get fired, you move to a different town, you start a new relationship, you get married, you get divorced, you have kids, you're constantly searching for a new tribe, you want to be acknowledged for the gifts that you have. These are all things that happen in YA books, and I think that's why so many adults are drawn to them. You mentioned that you're going back to King of Scars, which was a book that came out, I think, last year, right? And sort of reunited. Uh, actually, January of this year. January of this year. You are very prolific. I am very okay. <laughs> that uh, united the two worlds, um, the yes. Six of Crows and the original trilogy. Are you going back to Six of Crows as well? I have the sequel to write to King of Scars. I have the sequel to write to Ninth House. And then... Maybe. I, I've always thought it might be fun to write a third Six of Crows book, and I have a little notebook where I keep all of the ideas that come to me in the dead of night for that. One more Grishaverse question. This is becoming a TV show. It is. It's shooting right now in Budapest. Netflix is making it, and Eric Heiserer, who was behind Arrival, and Bird Box is our showrunner. And I've been seeing dailies come in every night, which is both thrilling and terrifying. And I'm going to go to set in in just a couple of weeks. Are you involved in the writing of it? I have been involved in the reading of and note giving on scripts from very early on. So I have mostly an idea of what's happening. But I'll admit that there's a certain desire to step back and let them do what they need to do to make the show. It's a very complicated show because it's bringing together both Shadow and Bones and Six of Crows. But also, my goal has never been to work in television. It's to write books. So, I mean, I say this, we are actually making... We're adapting Ninth House, and I'm planning to write the pilot for that, but it's then to step away from that because I really like writing books, and I don't particularly like writing scripts, and I don't particularly like reading scripts either. Mm-hmm. It does not scratch any any reader's itch that I might have, and so I, I want to make sure that I preserve space for me to be writing and uh, thinking about my novels and, and not just the adaptations of them. Were you involved at all in the casting? Because one of the things that I think is important about the trilogy and the duology is that even though they take place in this sort of Russia, Russian-inflected universe, it's very multicultural in terms of their scope and the characters in them. And the casting that was announced is also has a very multicultural cast. Yes. We actually, Eric and I sat down early on and one thing we agreed on was that we could actually make um, the Shadow and Bone storyline a lot more diverse than it had been in the books, that we could do it better than I had in the books. And 
you know, I'm an executive producer on the show, which sounds very powerful, right? Like executive, that sounds tough. But <laughs> but in fact, all that means is I can scream a lot when I'm excited about something and I can scream a lot when I uh, see a red flag. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they listen and sometimes they don't. And that's OK. But I'm very happy with the casting. And I was involved in the casting. And I think these are extraordinary young actors. I think they're incredibly gifted. Um, so I'm pretty excited to to see what they do. And everything I've seen thus far has been fantastic. So we've talked a lot about YA, what makes YA, that it's not really about the age of the reader. So why go into adult fiction with Ninth House? You know, I knew very early on that Ninth House just did not belong in YA. And it wasn't just because the character is a little bit older. It's not that it's set in a college. And Alex is, in fact, 20. She's not an an 18-year-old freshman. It's really none of those things. It's that I knew it was going to take me down some very dark paths. Mm -hmm. And I do think there's a limit of where you can go and not violate the reader's trust in YA. Mm -hmm. And I also think when you're writing about violence or assault in a secondary world, you know, in a place like Ravka or even or Westeros or wherever you are, to a certain extent, we're allowed to explore darker themes because we always have a little bit of a buffer knowing it's not our world. When you peel back that buffer, I think something changes. And I think the fact that despite all of the magic and the ghosts occupying the world of Ninth House, I think that that violence has a different kind of resonance because it happens in our world and we know we may have experienced it ourselves. We may know people who have experienced it. It feels different to me. All right. Well, I don't care what age our listeners are. I hope that you read Lee Vardugo's books. Lee, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, my colleagues Lauren Christensen, Elizabeth Egan, and John Williams. Hi, you guys. Hi, Pamela. Hi. Let's start with you, Liz. What are you reading? I am reading Olive Again by Elizabeth Strout. It's her sequel to Olive Kitteridge, which you might have read or you might have seen the HBO miniseries. But this book, although it's a sequel, is also a standalone. You don't have to have read the previous book to get your bearings. But for the uninitiated, Olive is of crusty and crotchety retired school teacher who lives on the coast of Maine. And this new book is a peek into her life 10 years after we last saw her. She's in the middle of her second marriage, and she is struggling with her relationship with her grown son. And it's also a peek into life in a small town and into the state of aging. And as always, Olive tells it like it is, whether you want to hear it or not. But she's a little bit softer in this incarnation and more aware of her own mortality. And there's a paragraph towards the end of the book that reminded me of Emily Webb's monologue in Our Town, Hmm. the part where she says, does anybody ever realize life while they're living it every, every day? And I wanted to just read this one paragraph from Olive. It's a little bit less sentimental, but it really stopped me in my tracks. And it goes like this. But it was almost over, after all, her life. It swelled behind her like a sardine fishing net, all sorts of useless seaweed and broken bits of shells and tiny, shining fish. All those hundreds of students she had taught, the girls and boys in high school she had passed in the corridor when she was a high school girl herself. Many, most, would be dead by now. The billion streaks of emotion she'd had as she looked at sunrises, sunsets, the different hands of waitresses who had placed before her cups of coffee, 
all of it gone or about to go. Liz, are you an Elizabeth Strout completist? Yes. So she (laughs) wrote two books in between, at least two books in between this and Olive Kittredge that were also tied, right? My my name is Lucy Barton and there was a, a companion. I think the Burgess Boys or the Burgess... I'm forgetting the name. But some of those people from those books actually make an appearance in this book. So I was going to say, even if you haven't read this book, Olive, again, is great, even if you're not familiar with Olive. But if you are an Elizabeth Strout completist, you'll recognize some of her characters. Not to put you on the spot, but someone, it might have been you, was telling me that that they like this even more. And they love Olive Kittredge, but they like this even more than the first book. I don't remember if that was me, but I totally agree with that. I think I did like it better. I think the softness to her is what really made this book hit home. And also, I always like to read a few years ahead in life. And for instance, before I had kids, I loved reading about parenthood because it, I felt it sort of educated me about what that would be like. It turned out it didn't quite educate me enough. But in this case, it's kind of fun to read about people who are several years older and it gives you a sense of where your life might go. And it gave me a sense of the stage of life my mom is in. I'm right feeling now. really similarly about like reading about mortality now, even though you and I are similar age. Yeah. And I always feel like I'm like 20 years sadder than I am. Like Same. when I was like 19, 20, I was reading Richard Ford and being like, oh, rueful, divorced, middle-aged guy. That's life. <laughs> and I'm like, yep, I'm about to die. I am I exactly what I'll be able to do the same I'm way. 70. But I think it makes you a, a more empathic person. That's right. I never know if it's empathic or empathetic, but either way, I think it makes you a little bit more aware of what's coming down the pike. Lauren, where are you getting your empathy from these days? <laughs> I was actually just going to say, it's probably why you liked the Kevin Barry so much. <laughs> <laughs> the most recent Kevin yes, Barry. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Aging guys. I am reading Anne Patchett's latest novel, The Dutch House. I confess, I'm certainly not an Anne Patchett completist. The last novel I read was Bel Canto in college, and I absolutely loved it. I mean, I was also... 20. But this book, I mean, I, she she has said in an interview somewhere that she has been writing the same book her whole life. I, I mean, I, I don't find that the plot of The Dutch House is really relatable to Bel Canto, but certainly the writing. And we've had a lot of discussions amongst the, the editors in the book review about readability as, as a quality in a novel and, you know, whether or not that's something that, you know, is a positive or negative. And I really think this novel makes an argument that it is, is absolutely a, a uh, positive. It's it's a totally smooth surface novel. It's about it's a, the story really of a brother and sister told from the perspective of the brother over I think I mean like probably half a century, and it is a little suspiciously harmonious their relationship. But but somehow Patchett really pulls off a sense of a smooth surface without it being a saccharine story. The two are raised by their at first their father and his new wife. Their mother has has abandoned the family and without ruining anything, they end up having to really defend their own fortune. And the the sister is quite a bit older than the brother and she turns out to be a a sort of maternal figure for him. And, you know, they just go through the the various normal stages of his life, but it's so abnormal in the sense that he really doesn't have parents. And so this brother-sister relationship morphs into something else entirely, but it's still quite recognizable. It's it's just, it's a beautiful story and, and it's so wonderfully readable while really making you reconsider you know, sort of family relationships. You've read it, Liz. You I like, loved it. Yeah. And I loved how much of it took place in a car yeah. parked in yeah. front of the Dutch yeah. house. And I also loved how even though the house is in the title and even though it's a character 
really unto itself in the book. And Patchett never really describes exactly what it looks right. like. And it's this blank canvas that you can impose anything on, mm-hmm. which I found fascinating. I saw Ann Patchett interviewed a few years ago at the Chautauqua Institute upstate, and she said that in each of her books, she tries to do something different with time. One of her books took place within 24 hours, and one, you know, was sort of told from, she just had a different device. And what's the device, what does she do with time in this book? Well, she really does jump back and forth. I mean, the the arc of the narrative is, as I said, over a a full lifetime of Danny, the protagonist, Um, but a lot of times you're seeing scenes unfold from their childhood as they're remembering them in the car, much further in the future when they're both adults. And so, it's like the This Is Us. <laughs> yes. I haven't seen that show, but... Uh, yes? Okay. That's unfortunate. <laughs> you need to watch it. It is just the way that she handles time is exactly like This Is Us. I don't know if Ann Patchett would appreciate that comparison. That. But well, I, I do. I haven't seen it. Okay. John, what are you reading? I'm going way back in time. I'm actually reading a book from the late 1800s, but I'm going to let the current day brilliant critic and writer Vivian Gornick do some of the work for me here because the reason I started reading this book was I was I was reading a collection called The Men in My Life by Gornick, which is just a uh, grab bag of essays that she's written over the years and criticism about Philip Roth and, and other male writers. There's six or seven essays in the book, and the first one is about a British writer named George Gissing who – obviously lived in the 19th century. And the book she talks about loving the most and that she goes on at greatest length about is called The Odd Women, a book that she says she rereads every six months or so. I always wonder about people who say they reread something every six months or so. I know, I don't so. believe them. You I never believe, I don't it. believe it. Well, I'm not a big rereader, so that's maybe part of the reason why. And and if you know Gornick's work, she had a great memoir a couple of years ago called The Odd Woman in the City. And so she obviously pulled from that title. It was about you know women who she says are progressive or a little bit ahead of their time, but that Gissing kind of gets that they're also just, they're a little off, and that she feels that way and relates to that herself. Anyway, that's a that's a long way of saying that what I'm reading is actually a novel called New Grub Street, which I think is Gissing's most famous. It's still in Penguin Classics. I don't think his other novels are readily available these days. And this is about a group of publishing people in the late 19th century. It's really about things like commercialism versus, you know, speed of reading versus leisure and about new technologies like the telegraph and distraction and and the market and and a lot of things that people are still obsessed about today. And it puts it in this group of characters who are friends and rivals and falling in love with each other. Um, it mostly concerns two writers, one named Jasper Milvane, who's, who's a young guy who wants to get on and be commercially successful, and another named Edwin Reardon, who writes really good novels that get nice reviews, but he's suffering financially. And then the two cousins that they're in love with. A lot of very conventional plot-driven pleasures and, and, some, and some sharp thoughts that do hold up remarkably well 130 years later about, about what it means to be a writer and, and what it means to try to make your way financially in the world when you're a creative person. Pamela, what about you? What are you reading this week? The book that I'm in the middle of is Zadie Smith's new collection of short stories, Grand Union. I'm only about a third of the way through, so I think I will reserve it for next week to discuss. But in the midst of that, I read two graphic novels, both of which my children read first, and only one of which is actually for kids. One is, I think, for all ages. They Called Us Enemy by George Takai, which was written with Justin Isinger and Stephen Scott and illustrated by Harmony Becker. This book came out over the summer, and my 14-year-old and my 12-year-old read it and persuaded me to read it. 
I didn't need much persuading because it, it looked really good and obviously was a big hit with readers. But I think most people probably know who George Takai is from Star Trek and, and know his story and his activism. But it's one of the things I love about graphic novels and graphic memoirs is that somehow the combination of really good um, comics illustration with text can tell a story in a way that really drives it home. And I liked the style in this book. It's line drawings. It's not colored. And the story sort of jumps back and forth in time from George Takai as an adult and when he was a child and his family was taken away as part of the Japanese internment program. And it's, again, one of those things that now we all know this history. When I was growing up, it was one line, you know, oh, a sorry episode in the high school textbook. But there was no detail offered, no detail in the way that you would get with concentration camps, you know, in Europe and the Holocaust. And this book really went into the detail. I don't know. Do you guys know this history well? Or have you read memoirs? I didn't know it until I read Snow Falling on Cedars. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that book? I remember it, but I didn't read it. And I can't remember the exact plot, but I remember while I was reading it, learning for the first time about the Japanese internment camps. And I don't even remember one line in in the history books, you know, back in the day. I mean, it's really quite shocking. Shocking. Um, shocking that this was condoned, the conditions. His family was taken to Arkansas. He and his older brother and his baby sister and their parents were put into a horse stall for the first few days. And then... And there's so many twists, and, and it kind of keeps getting worse. But one of the most brutal is at a point where they need more soldiers to fight the war. And so they turn to people that they've labeled, you know, hostile aliens in America and ask them, would you actually like to come and fight for us after all that, just out of desperation? And they made people sign papers pledging that they were no longer hostile alien enemies and would now pledge allegiance and what was interesting is that a lot of people be, did become radicalized in the camps, but then there were also conscientious objectors who said, actually, we never were your enemies, so we're not signing this because it's a tacit acknowledgement that we were. Right. And then they were sent to these punitive, even worse camps as a consequence wow. of refusing to volunteer to go to war. So that book was incredibly moving. And then I, I gave it to my 10-year-old, who then gave me the graphic memoir he was reading, which is White Bird by R.J. Palacio, who is the best-selling author of Wonder, and she also did the illustration for this. She was actually a graphic designer and artist before she was a novelist, and this is a fictional story that is very loosely tied to the kind of characters in Wonder, but it's about a girl in France who is taken to her experience under occupation and, and after. I'm still actually in the middle of that because my 10-year-old is insisting that I read it out loud to him. Wait, is that the one more for kids? You said that one, one is for kids. For kids. Okay. That one is for kids. They're Although they call us enemy is perfectly fine for kids. There's a little bit of language in it, but it's nothing that, you know, a mature child couldn't handle. Do you have an extra copy of the Takai laying around? I don't, but I will bring you mine in. Okay, thanks. All right. That's what we do here. We usually do it off off air, um, off podcast air. But if you give me your George Gissing, I shall give you okay, my a, George Takai. It's a deal. All right. Let's run down the list again. Lauren? I'm reading The Dutch House by Ann Patchett. I'm reading Olive Again by Elizabeth Strout. I'm reading New Grub Street by George Gissing. 
And I am reading Grand Union by Zadie Smith, and I just read George Takai's They Call Us Enemy, and I'm also reading White Bird by R.J. Palacio. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thank Thanks, you. Tom. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back, not right away, but I do. The Book Review Podcast is produced by the great Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with a major assist from my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Mm-hmm.